0: Welcome back to the Better Way Podcast, brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we are on a hunt for good ideas, for better ways of tackling longstanding organizational challenges. I'm Zach Casalia, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Hui Chen. Hi, Hui.
1: Hi, Zach.
0: Wait, we have a special episode today. This is a continuation in a series, and we're also joined once again by our colleague and friend, Caitlin Handren. Dr. Handren, hello. Hello. Thanks
2: for having me back.
0: Welcome back to the Better Way Podcast. I bet you didn't think that you'd be coming back quite so soon. (laughs) I think it just popped up on your calendar, and we said, (laughs) Caitlin, we want you to opine on incentives and policy set by the Department of Justice. Join us. And here we are
2: which I'm absolutely thrilled to do. Uh, I love speaking with you both, so this is a real joy.
0: We're really happy to have you. So, Huey, that is what we're going to be talking about today, right? We're going to be talking about the comments made, the policy set, the speeches uh, delivered by uh, Lisa Monaco and Kenneth Polite at the ABA conference recently. And specifically today, we're going to talk about DOJ policy around incentivizing compliance through compensation and review structures.
1: Let me start by a, a quote from Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, where she says, she introduces this topic about DOJ's initiative on compensation and clawback by saying, nothing grabs attention or demands personal investment, like having skin in the game, through direct and tangible financial incentives. So here the focus is square away on direct and tangible financial incentives. But incentives take more forms than financial incentives. There are other forms of incentives that operate to motivate people. So Caitlin, can you tell us a little bit more about the world of
2: incentives?
0: What's an incentive?
2: essentially just something that we're given in order to do something. And so it's a reward or a punishment in order to get us to behave in a particular way. And in terms of the world of research of incentives, it is quite rich. There is a lot going on in this world. And unfortunately, it it's actually pretty mixed in terms of recommendations that we can glean um, or insights we can draw from the literature about what we should be doing in terms of incentives so as you mentioned there are multiple kinds of incentives there are financial incentives but there are also other kinds that are non-monetary and as you might guess the research does suggest that our reactions to these incentives can be pretty varied depending on what kind of incentive it is and how much it is
0: incentives can take various forms both financial and otherwise i think we all get that the research is telling us that incentives may work in some cases and they may not work at others and that in some cases they may actually have counterintuitive outcomes mm-hmm. um, so so what do we do
2: that is a great question i'd say it really depends on what you're trying to do and the context. Uh, I think as a psychologist, I can people can get kind of annoyed that often the response is it depends and it can just depend on so many factors in this case. And so um, I know one topic of interest for Hui is this question of should we really be incentivizing behavior that people should be doing anyways, or should you be incentivized to do the right thing? And I think that is a great question and one that researchers have really spent a lot of time wondering. And one big objection to the use of incentives is the idea that it can crowd out intrinsic motivation. And so if we're given an incentive or reward for doing something that we already wanted to do anyways, then eventually we might begin to like that activity less and less and only associate our desire to do it with receiving that reward. And what the research suggests is that um, this can be the case under certain circumstances where if you're given a reward for doing something that like a puzzle that otherwise might be fun and you would do just regardless, once you've been given an an incentive to do it, once the incentive is taken away, that intrinsic motivation can go down and people might not be as excited or willing to do it.
0: So, I want to ask you a question on this front, because, you know, I think we hear this a lot, not just from social scientists like Caitlin, but we hear it just from people who are operating in this space. We hear, why should we be incentivizing people to do things that they're obligated to do? Why should we be incentivizing people to do the right thing? And the question I have is, that's an interesting question to ponder, but also in the organizational context, which is the context within which we're discussing it, isn't everything that one does within their organization ultimately driven by an incentive to get paid for it? I mean, we work at a place, we get paid, we do our job, and we are compensated and rewarded for it, oftentimes financially.
1: I think that's true. Certainly, I would say my my own experience is I consider a lot more than financial compensation. And when I graduated from law school, I had the choice to go to a very well paying law firm job, or to be a prosecutor. There was no amount of money the law firm could offer that would get me to turn down the prosecutor opportunity, because that was what I always wanted to do. That was why I went to law school. I wanted to do justice. I wanted to go get the bad guys. And uh, it paid a fraction of what the the law firm job was offering. And there was no question in my mind, which job I was going to take. And there are a lot of things that, that I think I, you know, again, speaking only to my own experience that I do because I want to do it because I believe it's the right thing. So one of the, the stories that I had read in, um, uh, you know, in one of the books was that, you know, talking about these sort of incentivizing. So think about yourself hosting a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, the person prepared the dinner with a lot of labor of love, Everybody sit down, have a wonderful time. And at the end of the meal, instead of just saying, thank you, that was so nice. One of the guests to get up and take out 200 bucks and say, thanks very much for that dinner. How does that make you feel? This was something that you did out of love. Your, Your compensation in that was seeing everyone enjoying your food. It was seeing everyone having a good time in your home and somebody just turned all of that into 200 bucks. And that almost feels insulting, I would yeah. think.
0: Yeah. Well, especially to you because I know that you, you never miss an opportunity to give us a good story and you never miss an opportunity to give us a good story that involves food. Um, or an analogy. <laughs> this
1: involves- this is true. This is uh this is this is true. I also will share an example again from my own experience. And and think back, I invite, you know, you to all think back to your own time, your know, own experience of similar things. I, I am an environmentalist. I, I love you know trying to avoid plastic waste, for example. So for probably over 30 years, I've always brought my own reusable bag when I go grocery shopping. Uh, a couple of years ago at my local farmer's market, they started a campaign. They want to get more people to do what I was already doing. So what they did was they had a campaign where if you can go shopping at, at the end of your shopping trip, you can go to this table and show them how many groceries from different vendors you bought that's not using plastic and in your own reusable bag. You get certain levels of prizes. The more you, you know, the more you have, the more you, you, the better prize you got. You would not believe how I vied to compete in this. When I discovered this, it was like, think, wow, somebody's rewarding me for this. Boy, I am really good at this and I deserve to be rewarded. So every time I went to the farmer's market that month, I was at that table and I was making sure that I got my level of prize. In my head, the intellectual part of my head says, you really shouldn't be doing this because you've been doing this for 30 years and you didn't do it because of this money. In fact, you're taking prizes away from people who need to be incentivized to do this. That Did that stop me from going to claim every prize? No, I'm embarrassed to say. I also will tell you, I wonder how many people went and shopped and got the plastics and they just hit the plastic bags and put everything in a reusable bag to claim the prize. I don't know if that happened, but I can certainly imagine. So Caitlin, I mean... I would love to hear your reactions about particularly research that sheds light on this embarrassing behavior that I just confessed to, right? What's,
2: you know, how widespread is this in terms of what we know? Is this common? You offered two stories, and I want to react to both. Um, There's quite a bit of research that came to mind. The first, this piece about offering money in response to A social offering that someone gives us. There is research to suggest that the way that the psychology or the mindset, whether we're dealing with money or non-cash incentives, it it really matters. And what the researchers hypothesized was that when we are working with money, we're really in a cost-benefit kind of mindset. And so with the greater the incentive, the harder we're willing to work or the more we're willing to do but what they hypothesized was with a non-cash reward we're just willing to work hard regardless because it's more about the social contract it's like you're being given a gift and you want to you want to deserve that gift and it doesn't necessarily matter as much how large that gift is to the point that actually people work harder when they receive no money than when they receive a small amount of money in some of these studies then To your second story about the farmer's market, the shopping bags, I, I think we all have these kind of stories that really challenge some of our intuitions about whether incentives work in the ways that we expect them to. And what the research suggests is that incentives seem to work very well, at least in the short term, but then once they're removed, that's really where we see some of the negative results happen where, you know, the crowding out of intrinsic motivation or frustration. I I imagine if you had a 30-year habit of using the bags, you continued (laughs) to use the bags even once the rewards stopped. And yet there's still the emotional experience that you had around it. Anytime we introduce something new to a system, it's it's going to affect it potentially um, and not always in ways that we can anticipate or that we hope for. And so, so I think your story is common. <laughs> and I think we all can probably reflect on these different examples that we have in our own minds about when incentives did work or didn't work. There's actually some research suggests that if it's too large, it can also backfire. So for instance, the question of, do you want a nuclear waste site in your backyard? If you're offered a lot of money, it might signal to you that that's really dangerous and you don't want that to happen. Whereas if you are not offered an incentive, then maybe you're weighing more of the consideration of, is it my civic duty? Do I have to agree to this just because it's part of being a citizen?
0: So Caitlin, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this childcare study that we all hear about a lot, and I think has sort of become a part of kind of the the pop culture zeitgeist around behavioral science, because I'd love to hear about the study itself, but then also talk about what happened since the study was released and how that contributes to this discussion around the complexity of incentives.
2: Absolutely. So in the study, essentially, the researchers were interested in working with childcare centers in order to reduce the number of parents who are showing up late to um, collect their children. And what they decided to try was a disincentive. So they wanted to um, include a fine, a very, very low fine. I think it translated to about three dollars at the time um, for parents who arrived late to pick up their children. And what they found was that with the introduction of the fine, the number of parents who were showing up late actually increased. And unfortunately, when they decided to roll back the fine, they didn't think it was (laughs) working out as well as they intended. Um, The norms persisted. So parents continued to show up late to um, pick up their children. And so I think this research, I know it made a big splash. It was very heavily cited both um, in academic research, but in popular press as well, but more recent research has failed to replicate it.
0: If I could just jump in there, when you say it failed to replicate, what does that mean for, for folks listening?
2: It means that other researchers used the same or similar methods to try to see if they could discover the same finding. It has failed to replicate. So when science, you expect that if you use the same or similar ways of doing things, you should expect the same or similar results. When we fail to see that, it calls into question the original findings and suggests that maybe it was just a fluke that you saw that finding, or maybe it was something very particular about the conditions of that particular study, but it won't generalize to other samples. And so this is really speaking to a broader crisis in the behavioral sciences where a number of studies are failing to replicate. And it's really a cause for concern because so much of What the field of behavioral science is trying to advocate for is that we need a much more scientifically based approach to how we are structuring our society. And so, we, I think, advocate very strongly for the use of behavioral sciences in business and government and basically anywhere where we can fit it in. I think being psychologically informed is tremendously important and not just psychologically, behavioral sciences spans a number of fields. The more you know, hopefully, the more informed. will be when you're making these decisions. However, of course, we're in this crisis where now people are debating whether they can trust the results or um, which results to trust. So for instance, even the studies I was discussing earlier about the crowding out effects of intrinsic motivation, I was reading that there were three meta-analyses that came out around the same time with differing results. And so what do you do when even a meta-analysis is suggesting um, something different from then another meta-analysis, and so it's a little discouraging, but I would say that um like any field that has growing pains, um the behavioral sciences they they are evolving, and there is increasingly attention being placed on the idea that these systems are far more complex than we've given them credit for, and using sticks and carrots like like incentives, it's a very simple tool that were we dealing with a complicated situation or a complicated um system then you know there might be right answers and there might be all these conditions under which they'll work in one way or another but when you're dealing with a complex system things aren't as straightforward not as linear less predictable we don't necessarily have these clear answers of it'll work when will it'll work and under which conditions
0: Caitlin, one thing I just want to underscore there uh, is you talked about complicated systems and complex systems. Now, I think a lot of us might hear that and think when you use complicated, you're using it as a synonym for complex. But you're actually being very intentional in the ways in which you're using those words. So tell us just a little bit about what is the difference between a complicated system and what I think we're talking about here in the context of incentives and compliance and shaping behaviors and humans, which is a complex system.
2: Yes, thank you so much. So this is based off of the Kenevan framework from Dave Snowden, which differentiates between ordered systems, which are simple and pretty straightforward and constrained, complicated and complex. And so with something that's complicated, you can think of a car, for instance. It's very complicated. I don't know how to work a car. I need an expert to help me anytime I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing with my car, even for the most basic thing. But what we know to be true of a car is that if you have the expertise, then you have the expertise, you know how it works, and you can offer recommendations, you can can take it apart, put it back together. That's not necessarily the case in a complex system where you have a number of independent actors that are all engaging with one another and are all complex in and of themselves. A, A single human is so complex, and then you put a whole bunch of humans together, and you've got an extraordinarily complex situation where even if incentives work, if they have worked previously in a number of different studies, there might be something particular that has emerged in a complex system that will disrupt how that plays out.
0: That's great. And I think we actually just lived the the, the living example of that, which is Hue. Hue is a complex system. Hui is not motivated by money and the job that she takes, is not motivated by money when she cooks a meal for someone, is in fact offended when they offer her money for the meal that she's created, but is really motivated by small benefits associated with using environmentally friendly uh, bags at the farmer's market. I mean, that is complexity right there. Yeah.
1: Well, so are all of us. So I <laughs> I was just only foolish enough to share some of my complexities, uh, but... I, I I think the, the point is, you know, when we think about it, we're complex because we're not all two plus two equals four. I also think it's interesting because I, I think some of the, the more simplistic financial or otherwise immediate incentive systems might work better in a more simplistic situation, one step decision, as opposed to a multi-step decision. So uh, the example I would give is I had an uncle who was always late, always very late to every single family event. So my mother required him to give a one hundred U.S. dollar deposit, and he gets that refunded if he shows up on time. But he loses it if he's more than he's more than fifteen minutes late. It worked. He was never late to my mother's you know events that my mother hosted. But that was a, that was one behavior. Just don't be late, right? Some of the behaviors that we're talking about in organization, when we're talking about ethics and compliance, it's not that simple. It oftentimes involves a series of decisions or different decisions or repeated decisions over time. I think the complexity in all of that is, I think there's really no simple way to incentivize a series of decisions over time.
2: Or am I am I simplifying the matter? The research that I know of in the education space is consistent with your intuition here that it depends on what the ask is. And so simple tasks are incentives are more effective, but things like attendance. So incentives work well if all you have to do is show up. But if it's a matter of performance, that's where things begin to get a little trickier. And I, I think your intuition is right about it being repeated over time. And anytime there's more distance between the action and the incentive, I think that also makes everything a bit murkier as well.
0: One of the things I also want to talk about, shifting gears just a little bit, is a topic that we talked about the last time you were on the podcast and something that we talk about a lot, which is measurement, outcomes, data, testing. And I mean, you kind of gave us this point, Caitlin, when you're talking about the childcare study and the fact that it hasn't replicated, that it required testing and measurement and data to ultimately figure that out. And the truth is, there's probably not going to be a silver bullet for every organization or every group of people. And so it really does underscore how important it is for whenever we put in place new policies that we are hoping are going to shape behavior that we actually measure the outcomes, using data to determine whether or not they work. So here, though, we have policy being articulated, but we don't know whether it's going to work. So what do you do? I mean, maybe, maybe way I come to you first. You know, the Department of Justice says that this is something that folks should do. I think a lot of folks will do it (laughs) for that reason. But what we really want, and I think what the department ultimately really wants, is that we do things that work. So what do we do? There's some conflict there.
1: There's definitely conflict there because what I'm assuming, based on the speeches that were made surrounding this initiative, that were there were certain relatively concrete outcomes that they're hoping to promote. They're hoping, I believe, to promote less recidivism. They're hoping to pro- promote better prevention of criminal behavior in organizations. They're hoping to promote better, stronger cultures of ethics and or compliance, which I distinguish those two words, but we can talk about those later. So the question is, are they collecting data to study whether these initiatives are working towards those goals, right? Because what I think we need to be cognizant of is when a pilot program like this is announced, in some ways it's like a call for a social experiment. I'm now quoting um, specifically from the pilot program announcement itself. Uh, one, of the, one of the things they want to see is incentives for employees who demonstrate full com- commitment to compliance processes. I'm not even sure what that means exactly, but yeah. if, you know, if somebody could figure out what this is, maybe they can articulate a clear hypothesis and if there is a clear hypothesis, maybe we can have data that would help us measure whether it's accomplishing its intended objectives. But there really is no mention of what kind of data that they would be collecting to evaluate the success of this program or the validity of this uh, of their hypothesis. So, Caitlin, if it were you assuming that the the goals are the ones that I articulated, basically less criminal activities in corporations, what kind of data should they be collecting for, for a measurement?
2: I think there are a lot of maybe more straightforward responses in the compliance space in terms of how do we look at compliance. But I would say what comes to mind for me is really just the importance of culture. And <laughs> that's probably not surprising. When we're talking about complexity and when we're talking about human behavior and what drives human behavior, there's just so much Disconnect between what we know about human psychology and how humans operate and how the world is structured. And so there's now significant research and conversation around just neuroscience and how much of our cognition is happening outside of our conscious awareness. And yet we have built systems and structures based on the very small percentage of our cognition that's happening consciously and uh, more or less rationally. And so I think. That definitely needs to be a part of the conversation and it's it's why I always turn back to culture in terms of thinking about how we ultimately want people to behave. And so I'd say in terms of measurement, there's so much that can go into assessing the culture and whether it's ethical, but I I think it comes down to listening to people and finding out what their experiences are and what motivates them. and. The research seems to suggest that people are both driven by what they think is right and by what they think others think is right. It comes down to creating a culture where people want to be there and know that this is an environment where people do the right thing, so that you attract the talent and the people, like Hui, who are motivated intrinsically to do the right thing. But then you also want to make sure that you're supporting and encouraging the broader cultural context to align with that as well. So you're bringing people into an environment that's consistent with their own goals. And so concretely, what does that actually look like? Listening to people, gathering stories, finding out what their experiences are like, finding out what the processes are like for them. Is it comfortable and safe to report? Also considering leadership. The introduction of incentives potentially is going to call into question um, trust. And trust is just so important within the organizational context. Once you introduce incentives, the question is, why are people doing what they're doing? Before you maybe would have inferred that it was of their own volition, that they were acting on what they believe is right. Once you introduce incentives, now you may be questioning that and you may really begin to doubt how genuine people's motivations are. And so that's definitely something to consider as well. as we come closer to the to the end of our time,
1: i I also want to pick up on that last point you made in terms of how you perceive people who are being who are acting under compensation. going back to the language in the pilot announcement, incentives for employees who demonstrate full commitment to the compliance processes. you can easily see that being uh, applied to uh, leaders in the company. So, Let's incentivize them for promoting compliance. Now, one of my worries is when my leader is standing up at a town hall talking about ethics and value, right now, I like to think that they are doing it out of their personal conviction. So intrinsically motivated. If I learn that they're actually getting paid according to the pro compliance messages that they deliver, for me, that would change my perception because I might think you're only saying that because you're paid to say it, not because you really believe it absolutely what's your what's your view on that?
2: oh i I agree a hundred percent and and the research does suggest that the introduction of incentives can disrupt trust uh, and the development of trust across um, different processes. So I think your intuition is spot on.
0: You know, one of the things that this that this raises for me that I think is 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 inevitable is the risk that what we're actually doing is creating compliance theater as opposed to actual compliance, that we're sort of um, manufacturing it and treating it, to your point, Caitlin, like a complicated system, like a car, like a robot, like a machine, when in fact it is this complex system that requires to really work, to be real, to be authentic, to engender trust, to shape behaviors, it actually really does require it to be intrinsically motivated. And if that's the case, what's an organization to do if it's not?
2: I think the way to get people to behave in the way that you are hoping that they will is really to make it social, to make it something that everyone's doing, to, to make it so that you're floating downstream with the current and not fighting against it. And so I think anytime we're asking the question of how do we increase intrinsic motivation, there are a number of steps we can take, making things fun, making things engaging, making them social, these are all strategies that can increase people's willingness to engage in an activity.
0: We're talking about a complex system. So who is the organization? What is the organization? The organization mm-hmm. you know, may have values and there may be leadership that's driving uh, decision-making consistent with those values that is intrinsically motivated, but you got 100,000 employees out there and some of them may not be. Mm-hmm um that's that's kind of what i'm thinking about It's like how do we how do we drive compliance when there may be actors who aren't intrinsically motivated way i
1: i think precisely by starting to do what you just did zach which is distinguishing the organization in a way that recognizes the individuals. So because I think people oftentimes talk about an organization as if we're a single, one single individual, it fails to recognize that complexity. And recognizing that there are going to be people who are more intrinsically motivated, and there are going to be people who are going to be externally uh, motivated. And you really need to deploy a combination in a way that s- speaks to these different motivations. So I would say what's, you know, what I have learned from this conversation, the better way to me is to think of incentive in a way that's complex. I'm learning uh, the new use of an old word. Um, so it, think about incentives as a complex concept that is not just about financial compensation. It's not just about the, the all carrots or all sticks. Some people on some things will respond to the carrots better, and some other people on other things will respond to the sticks better. So the what, what is challenging here is grappling with that complexity, yeah. is to figure out in what circumstances, with whom, in what way do we find those intrinsic or extrinsic motivation.
0: yeah Yeah. that makes that makes good sense when i first read this my initial reaction i I think i even said this earlier was well here's policy that's intended to shape behavior that isn't actually tested where's the data where's the research exactly my my mind originally went to well if an organization is going to put in place an incentive program it should then measure its outcomes but i actually wonder if the better way and caitlin i think this is what you've been saying is the better way actually is we should really understand the psychology of our organization we should understand the complexity of our organization we should understand through measurement of our culture whether or not our people are incentivized by the financial reward or whether or not they are already intrinsically motivated let's understand where people are and then let's shape policy in response to that and to your point way we have the opportunity to set policy that isn't uh, monolithic because an organization isn't monolithic. And so if we have that data, if we understand our organization in that way, we're able to put policies in place that are targeted to the people and the complexity of our organization so that the way that we do it here might be slightly different than the way that we do it there, because we understand our people.
2: I I love that. I couldn't agree more. I think it really does begin with finding out where you are and listening to folks and understanding them and what's driving them. And Complexity science experts suggest that when you're dealing with a complex system, there there aren't necessarily best practices, there are emergent practices, there are, there will be the discovery, the testing, and then the emergence of something that might completely surprise you. And I think being prepared for that is another piece of this. Um, what I always recommend is that people go into it. And we've talked about this with a scientific mindset, with curiosity, but also with the willingness to collect the data and find out that you might be wrong, completely wrong. (laughs) Going back to just this idea that things aren't necessarily structured optimally based on what we know from the neuroscience. I I just feel so strongly that we need to overcome our attachment to the status quo and really be willing to get creative and experiment. I know Huey told me a story about instead of offering a compliance ambassador a financial incentive, instead offering them dinner with the CEO. And I think that's a really creative alternative that could be very motivating for some people. It might be less motivating for others. It might be a nightmare scenario for some people, but it could work well. And I I think that element of curiosity paired with the willingness to actually look at the data is exactly what we need when we're dealing with complex systems.
0: What I'm hearing is your better way is find better ways. (laughs) Be creative, be innovative, disrupt the status quo, try something new. Yeah, don't land on what's easy and predictable,
1: right? And gather evidence and, to, to to validate
0: and data. Yeah, yeah. This has been such a fun discussion, Caitlin. Thank you so much for coming back. Any uh, any final words for our audience?
2: I do just want to put a plug in for creativity and thinking outside the box. We don't often get a lot of room to express creativity and to move beyond what's already been done before. And there's so much psychological resistance to changing what has been done before that I think we all need to be a little bit more intentional about allowing a little bit off the wall thinking or out of the box thinking and 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 just really question some of these foundational assumptions that structure so much of our lives. I think there's a lot of possibility once we begin to move beyond some of those assumptions
0: couldn't have said it better myself fully agree Huey, any final thoughts from you
2: i would say
1: embrace the complexity but always be prepared to defend it you defend it by collecting evidence and data along the way
0: well, that's all the time we have on this episode of the better way podcast caitlin thank you so much for joining us thank you all for tuning in to the better way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us for more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.